bombshell new paper is just out in the New England Journal of Medicine. Let me walk you through it on this channel in this video and on the podcast plenary session. The paper is entitled, The Effect of Colonoscopy Screening on Risks of Colorectal Cancer and Related Death. It's the Nordic trial. This is the first randomized control trial of colonoscopy that's ever been conducted. We've had randomized trials of FOBT and Flexig. We're going to run through what we haven't had randomized trials of, but one of those things was colonoscopy. There has not been a published report of a randomized trial of colonoscopy. This is the first one, and spoiler alert, it's negative. It is negative on colorectal cancer death, negative on all-cause mortality. We're going to talk about what it means, what are the implications in this video. Let me walk you through it. This is the paper just came out on the New England Journal of Medicine website. First, I think we need to get a little bit of background. This is a 2016 paper that I wrote uh, with colleagues in the British Medical Journal, and it was about why cancer screening has not been shown to save lives. There's an important distinction in cancer screening, and that's the distinction between dying from colon cancer and dying for any reason. All cancer screening tests are trying to prevent you from dying from a particular type of cancer. Mammograms, breast cancer. CT screening, lung cancer, lung cancer. Colonoscopy flexig, colon cancer. PSA, prostate cancer. Now, there are new blood-based cancer screenings that are supposedly trying to protect you from dying from several cancers. The goal of a cancer screening test is to find cancer. It's, not, it's to find cancer or precancer before it otherwise would declare itself in a state where you can interdict upon it, where you can act upon it, cut it out, remove it, and you will get a benefit that you otherwise wouldn't have gotten had you found it at a later stage. That's the principle of cancer screening. So in our paper in the British Medical Journal in 2016, we took a broad view of cancer screening. We noticed that many, many studies were powered and designed and suited to look at cancer-specific death, death from that cancer. But did it also reduce all-cause death? And that's an important question because somebody who's healthy, undergoing a preventive or screening test, they're doing it because they want to improve their overall quality of life and their overall longevity. They may not care about averting a death from lung cancer if they end up dying from a pneumothorax during a lung cancer-related procedure. So you want to balance the harms of screening against the benefits of screening. And the ultimate arbiter of that balance is all-cause mortality. It's the ultimate, it's the ultimate tally. And in this paper, we took a look at all cancer screening tests and we concluded that, you know, we should be very cautious about saying they save lives because no screening test to date has proven an all-cause mortality benefit in randomized controlled trials. And we focus on the, the main screening tests of lung, colorectal cancer, prostate cancer, and breast cancer in this study. And I think it's an important paper. The BMJ had an infographic. The infographic had a couple of slides. One was the Minnesota FOBT study. This was a study that conclusively showed that fecal occult blood testing, that sort of collecting stool and looking for occult blood, which triggers a procedure to go find what led to that blood, that definitely lowers the risk of colorectal cancer death. That's shown in the top part of the figure. But in the extended follow-up of the study, there was no reduction in all-cause mortality. Now, some people say, well, of course, you're going to die of something anyway, but that's a misunderstanding of what we're talking about here. We're talking about there's no reduction in all-cause mortality. That doesn't mean that everyone ends up dead. That means that every single moment in time, the risk of being dead is identical. The Kaplan-Meier curves are overlapping. At any moment in time, the risk of all-cause mortality is the same. And what that means is that there doesn't appear to be any benefit. It's not like you're living a little bit longer by undergoing FOBT. At every moment in time, those Kaplan-Meier curves are superimposable. So you're not getting any all-cause benefit from there. Now, why might this be the case? And the BMJ infographic shows you. 
I didn't make the infographic. The person who wrote about our essay made the infographic, but they did a good job, so I like to use it. And what they show is that it's entirely plausible. A screening program results in fewer deaths from the target cancer, like colon cancer, but has off-target harms. Those harms might be increased harms of treatment in the case of PSA testing, because so many men become prostate cancer patients. There might be downstream harms of all that treatment and all that sort of um, anxiety that comes from becoming a patient. And there are studies that link it to heart attacks and suicides going up after a prostate cancer diagnosis. All those sorts of off-target deaths those slippery deaths, those deaths that are hard to attribute to screening, those should also count, and all-cause mortality is the only metric that counts at all. Now, elsewhere, I've talked about lung cancer screening, which I think has failed to show an improvement in all-cause mortality because the initial NLST result, that result vanished with extended follow-up in the paper by Pinsky and colleagues a few years later. That was not due to the contamination, as somebody thought online, because it couldn't have possibly been because the uptake was so poor. Um, and also that the Nelson trial shows no evidence of all-cause mortality reduction. But after we wrote the paper, there was good news. There was one cancer screening test that did actually show that the improvements in cause-specific death, colorectal cancer death, did translate to an all-cause mortality benefit. And that was flexible sigmoidoscopy. This was an analysis that was in the Annals of Internal Medicine, very carefully done analysis, controlling for something called Simpson's Paradox. I won't bore you with that on this video. And it shows clearly that there's an all-cause mortality benefit from Flexig. I quite like that. I quite like this study. And so for me, this elevated flexible sigmoidoscopy as the preferred colorectal cancer screening test. Now, that's not the way USPSTF thought about it. They've always said any screening is better than no screening. We've written that that might be a flawed understanding of science. Um, but we should be clear that flexible sigmoidoscopy is the one test that has cleared the highest hurdle, cause-specific death reduction, translating at all-cause mortality benefit. Now, we should also remind ourselves that all cancer screening tests merely avert a fraction of cancer-specific death. There's no cancer screening test that makes you have a 100% reduction in dying from that cancer. This was a paper led by Sunny Kim uh, that we published in the Canadian Medical Journal called Cancer Screening, a Modest Proposal for Prevention, where we went through every single cancer screening test. We talked about what fraction of deaths were averted by screening, assuming the most favorable upper bound optimistic results that there was no off-target death that outcompeted the cause-specific mortality reductions. And what you see is a range of estimates that go from, you know, the deaths not averted by screening are still the majority of cancer deaths in that for that cancer. So even if you get colonoscopies perfectly, there's still a big chunk of those people who will die of colon cancer. You're averting some deaths in the most optimistic scenarios, but not all deaths. But doing this allowed us to really take a broad view, which I'll talk about in a second. The last thing I'd say is recently the USPSTF, United States Preventive Services Task Force, moved the target screening age from 50 to 45. The randomized trials included 50 and above, but they moved to 45 based on modeling. We wrote this paper in the evidence-based medicine journal of the British Medical Journal, Logan Powell and myself, where we argued that that was a bold, unprecedented, and perhaps uh, incorrect view, incorrect move. They shouldn't be basing screening recommendations on modeling because if you've been around for the last three years, you'll know one thing about these, these medical models. They tend to be inaccurate. They tend to really be inaccurate. And it was bad enough when you uh, used an inaccurate model maybe to change a screening recommendation, but now we've used inaccurate models to change the fate of nations and lockdowns, et cetera. But models can be inaccurate. They're not a perfect science. So in the colorectal cancer landscape, what has randomized control trial evidence supporting benefit? What does not? We should acknowledge. FOBT, yes. 
There is a reduction in cause-specific mortality from FOBT versus observation from many old randomized control trials. Sigmoidoscopy, yes, there's a reduction in cause-specific mortality, and that appears to translate into an all-cause mortality benefit from sigmoidoscopy. Fecal immunohistochemical testing leverages the principles of FOBT. It has a certain sensitivity and specificity. It has never been directly proven to have a reduction in cause-specific mortality. FOBT, of course, doesn't have an, o an o overall mortality benefit. And fecal DNA tries to leverage the principles of FIT, although the evidence is very, very weak, in my opinion, because they, they didn't do a, a, a good study, in my opinion. They didn't compare themselves against annual FIT, which will actually improve the sensitivity. I'm willing to accept FIT, for cause-specific mortality benefit, I'm willing to accept sigmoidoscopy should be the preferred treatment because it's actually pretty easy to do. Um, it uh, requires less preparation. It is safer to do uh, than colonoscopy. It has a lower complication rate and has the strongest evidence. It should be the preferred option. The USPSTF should say, we recommend sigmoidoscopy, but instead they recommend colonoscopy too. And the logic behind that is getting a sigmoidoscopy is like getting a mammogram on one breast. That's their logic. But that's different because the left and right breast presumably have the same sort of biologic tissue and processes, but the right and left colon are very different places, and they may be fundamentally different response to a screening intervention in the left and right. We won't know that from Nordic because they don't have the power to look for that interaction, but we might know it someday from ongoing studies. But we have to be very clear, colonoscopy has no randomized control trial data prior to this study supporting its use, and this study actually doesn't support it, and blood-based screening tests like the septin-9 methylated gene test has uh, no data at all. Trash data. It shouldn't have even been approved. That's a big mistake. And the USPSTF is making a big mistake every year. They say any screening is better than no screening. They should be recommending the screening with the best evidence. That's what they should do. They're not doing that because they are too confident. They're arrogant, I think. We wrote this paper, Ravi Parikh and I, in the journal JAMA, where we talked about blood-based screening for colon cancer, a disruptive innovation or simply a disruption. I quite like that title because I think it's apropos. In this essay, we say the following. I'll read it to you because I think it can't be said better than this. Although blood-based screening should be used for individuals eligible for but not adherent with other screening methods, that's who they said they would target, it's possible the test will undergo indication drift in both directions. Patients with more severe comorbidities whose life expectancy precludes benefit from screening have been shown to be more likely to undergo blood-based screening tests than invasive tests. So you might be getting some people who don't benefit at all from screening deciding to do it. Availability of a test may increase convenience among those who should not be screened. So that's the first point. And in the other direction, given the convenience, there may be some people who are appropriate candidates for sigmoidoscopy who may wish to first be tested in lieu of, or perhaps even in lieu of getting this blood-based test, which has limited sensitivity. And so blood-based screening can even erode and not enhance outcomes. So the USPSTF's recommendation itself of any screening versus no screening, that's a type of policy recommendation that has no substantive evidence to support it. They should focus on the screening test with the strongest evidence and advocate for that. Why do they focus on any test? Well, one should be suspicious that the advocacy and the amount of money at stake is tremendous. Colonoscopy, of course, is extremely lucrative. At the end of a colon, it's a thousand-dollar bill. That's what I like. That's what many doctors say, and it is far more lucrative than sigmoidoscopy. And likely, that is what led it to be the dominant screening modality in the United States. Enter the paper, the Nordic study. 
The other thing I'll say is colonoscopy is it, it has a, a far greater preparation. You have to have a clean colon. It requires more days off work. There are studies that show that people tend to miss the day they're getting prepped and maybe even one day after recovering. Sigmoidoscopy has a much faster recovery. All those days you're missing from work because you're getting a screening test should count against your program. Those are days of life being lost to screening. Those need to count against whatever days of life your screening test is adding to your life. And those should also be accounted for. And also drinking the gallon of Go Lightly to prep for colonoscopy. It's not exactly fun. And if you want to know how not fun it is, I recommend highly the uh, Lewis Black. Uh, I think it's a two-minute comedy bit about when he drank that bottle of Go Lightly. And there's nobody who said it better than Lewis Black. Enter the Nordic study. Nordic study randomized control trial. It is a pragmatic registry-based randomized trial run by countries that know how to do that well, the European nations. And uh, it was run from 2009 to 2014. It has de minimum contamination of the control arm. In other words, people on the control arm, they really aren't getting colorectal cancer screening. So take away that excuse. That was the excuse you used with PLCL prostate. You won't have that excuse here. And this is what the trial shows. Pragmatic Nordic study, Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, Poland, 55 to 64. If anything, a really ripe demographic to show benefits. That's where they did this study. This is a report based on 84,000 participants um, in these in these studies. Very well done. The primary endpoint is the risk of colorectal cancer, the incidence of the disease itself, and death from colorectal cancer. But the secondary endpoint, the endpoint I really care about, which is living longer for any reason, all-cause mortality, is included here. Okay? The integrity of the trial was preserved through collaboration with the screening program in two ways. One, screening programs were introduced early in geographic regions where the trial was not enrolling participants. And second, the trial participants were too old to be eligible for the new screening programs by the time the programs were introduced in the areas where our trial was being conducted. This is a roundabout way of saying there is no contamination of the control arm. The people who were assigned to the control arm who were not to be screened, they were in fact not screened. And so you won't be able to say that that diminuted or vanished or dissipated the benefit scene because they were not screened on the control arm. The problem is they also weren't screened so well on the screening arm. But that's the, that's the, that's the rub. Almost complete long-term follow-up of all participants who underwent randomization was made possible through the use of unique personal identification numbers, which were linked to cancer registries and cause of death registries for all trial participants in each country. Look at the look at the Europeans. They actually know how to track people in clinical trials. They actually know how to run clinical trials of, ran, of screening processes exceedingly well. Look at these Europeans. Hats off to them. We assumed a 25% difference in colorectal cancer death between the invited group and usual care group, 50% participation rate, and 50% adherence to screening. So they're assuming a lot of dropout, and they're powering their trial accordingly for a benefit on colorectal cancer death that, as I showed you in a slide a few back, I think is plausible and compatible with what people think colonoscopy ought to deliver. And in fact, with 80% power, two-sided alpha, a two-sided significance level of 5%, they required something like 22K and 45K people. They got that. They got 28K and 56K people. So if anything, their power is actually, they're a little bit powered beyond this power calc. They're probably powered for something like a 20% difference in CRC death, assuming those dropout rates. Here's the table one. Table one, the proof is in the pudding in table one. All participants, the ratio between men and women, the age of randomization. Um, you know, it's not a very robust table one, uh, but it, it does tell you uh, some things. The reason probably because it's a registry based. Um, major bleeding does occur in, you know, one sixth of 1%. 
one-sixth of one percent of people get major bleeding, but they were able to do without any perforation, which is good. And the quality of their um, colonoscopy is superb. They're getting 96% uh, intubation of the cecum, which means you've gotten to the destination. That, you've got the $1,000 bill. That's where, they, that's, where the, that's where they tuck it in. The insurance company puts it right there, and the GI doctor goes and snares it with a little forceps, and that's why they like to do this procedure. Well, and also, they truly believe that they are saving lives. You know, there's nothing like money and true belief that is the methamphetamine of being a doctor. It really reinforces a behavior. Colonoscopy screening. The percentage of, this is the rub of the paper. The percentage of participants who underwent screening varied among the countries from 33% in Poland to 60% in Norway. So people are going to say, well, that's not high enough. It's not a test of if you get a colonoscopy screen. It's a test of being invited. There's only a overall 42% rate of adherence. That doesn't really tell us for the person choosing to be screened, whether or not they ought to. But actually, it is an important commentary on what we're doing in the United States, which is spending tens of billions of dollars on the screening test. I've shown you here below a graph that I have found, which is limited by survey methodology, of the percent of Americans undergoing screening by year. We're talking about 59%, 63%, 66%. So here we're getting 42% and 60% in Norway. Norway's results, which by the way are also null, Norway's results are similar to what the U.S. program is getting. For most of the history of colorectal cancer screening, we had screening rates that probably were not that dissimilar from this study. So this study is actually telling us that we who've been shoveling money in the colorectal cancer screening bucket, where we could have shoveled that money in the childhood nutrition bucket, the, the, the perinatal nutrition bucket, the, the improving um, you know, diet and exercise, lowering blood pressure bucket, we didn't put it in those buckets. We put it in the colon cancer screening bucket. We had adherence rates in the U.S. roughly on par with this study for many years, for decades. Did we get any value for our money? And I think this study is a direct comment that we may not have gotten value for our money. We may have been better off taking that money and controlling people's blood pressure. And that's the key about preventive services. It is a trade-off. You have to decide which has the strongest evidence and which is the thing you should pursue. And I think this is, trial is actually not irrelevant for the United States. Now, there's a difference between do you inform an individual making this choice? That's one question. But does this inform the United States effort? And if anything, I think these percentages of what they say here are, are inflated because many people are probably lying on some of these surveys because if somebody asks me, hey, do you do go to the doctor and do all the things you're supposed to do? I say, yeah, you know, and then if you really put a gun to my head, nah, I mean, come on, man, I got things to do. Okay, this point. This is a graph showing the incident rate of colorectal cancer. Now, colonoscopy is a unique screening test because it is both um, a screening, but also a preventive strategy. You can clip a polyp before it becomes cancer. And so what this shows very nicely is you would expect the invited group would have an increased incidence in the beginning because you're picking up more cancers, all the cancers that would have presented outside of screening, plus all the cancers that presented only because of screening. So that's why the red curve is higher. But as you would expect, the curves would eventually cross because you've clipped all these polyps, and now the incidence of colorectal cancer on the back end is going to be better. Um, and in fact, you see that. And so this is telling us that, you know, despite the quote unquote low adherence rate of 42%, you are able to see a visual difference in the rate of colorectal cancer incidence, which is also similar to the PLCO, which people, people love to gloss over. All right. But here is the key figure, the risk of death of colorectal cancer and the risk of death of colorectal cancer 10 years out in this study 
And the first analysis, median follow-up of 10 years, is absolutely just plain old null. It's negative. You're not even reducing cause-specific mortality in this study. Remember, FOBT met that bar, and sigmoidoscopy met that bar, and the all-cause mortality bar. Those are all from older studies. There have been secular trends in lifestyle and incidence of colon cancer and secular trends in knowing to go to the doctor when you have a bloody bowel movement, secular trends in smoking, and all these secular trends may have change the net effect of this intervention. But this looks as null as it gets in my mind. Pretty, pretty null. And here's what I think is really important, that if you did this, you worked really hard, you did the colonoscopy just like the doctor told you, or you didn't, what's your death rate over the next 10 years, the people in this study? 11% of people in one arm, 11.03% of people in the invited group arm were dead 10 years later. 11% were dead. And the amount of people dead in the usual care arm was 11.04%. It's the same person. There's an 11% risk of death over 10 years. One out of 10 people are not going to be around. Now, what's the risk of colorectal cancer death? It was 0.28, so like one-third of 1%, and it goes to 0.31, one-third of 1%. So, you know, we have to put screening tests in context. A healthy person cares about being around in the next 10 years. They have a 1 in 10 chance of death. And this doesn't change that at all. And we're going to make some assumptions. Let's say we assume everyone did what they were supposed to do and got screened. It will barely budge the 11%. I'm going to show you. They do something called a per-protocol analysis. A per-protocol analysis is what you do when you're too stupid to understand a randomized trial. No, sorry. That was too harsh. But it is a stupid thing to do. Okay, it's a stupid thing to do. And let me tell you why it's a stupid thing to do, per-protocol analyses. Because the purpose of randomization is that we want to distribute and out, uh, distribute um, variables that may affect the outcome in both arms similarly. We don't equilibrate every single variable in a table one, but we do equilibrate the outcome distribution. So known and unknown confounders are balanced when you randomize huge numbers of people. A per-protocol analysis asks, what about the people in one arm who were compliant with the treatment? How do they do compared to people in the other arm, either everyone in the other arm or some subgroup of people in the other arm who we think are matched to these per-protocol people as they did in this study? But the problem with that is if you only look at the people adherent, you have really washed away the purpose of randomization. You're looking at all the covariates and biases in life that make us adherent. Who is likely to be adherent to colorectal cancer screening? Is it the rich person or the poor person? Is it the person with high medical literacy or low medical literacy? Is it the person who's willing to put, eat granola and quinoa or the person who doesn't eat granola and quinoa? You know, these are the biases that are present in life. People who are compliant tend to be compliant and different in many other domains. So doing a per-protocol analysis for a screening test means, to my mind, your brain don't work because you're, you're, you're washing away whatever gain you've gotten from randomization. And if you're going to do a per-protocol analysis, then don't even randomize. Just do some bullshit observational study. Many people are good at that, and you can be able to generate these results. Having said all that, they did the per-protocol analysis. And in the per-protocol analysis, it gives you an upper-bound benefit. They're comparing the people who were compliant against people who had covariates matched for compliancy. So they're not picking everyone in the control group. They're just picking the people who would, you know, they think would be equally well-behaved and compliant. And they compare those people. And under that assumption of 100% compliance, which by the way, we're not even close to in the US. At best, we're 70%, okay? We're 30% worse than this. The risk of death from colon cancer in one arm would be 15%, point one, sorry, not 15%, that's huge. 0.15%, one-sixth of 1% versus 0.3, one-third of 1%. And it's roughly, that it's one-sixth of 1% reduction in colorectal cancer death. That's roughly what they'd say we ought to have gotten had we had more compliance. And so 
this has an X on it because these numbers are made up. These are made up numbers because if you actually increase the compliance of colonoscopy, what would you do to off-target death? You don't know because you'd have to do it to find out. And this is the same problem that uh, the Bangladesh mask study people made, which is they assumed what would happen if people had 100% masking, but they missed the point that even though they did everything under God's, under the sun to increase compliance, people wouldn't comply. So they were pining for a theoretical world that don't exist. And that's what they're doing here in this per protocol. And what I show you here is it would go from like 11.03 to 10.88. And these are made up numbers, but it would be basically like 667 people have to be compliant to avert one death over the course of 10 years. And your risk of 10-year death, you'd tell someone like, look, you do this colonoscopy now, you get a 10.8% chance of being dead in the end of this decade. If you don't do this colonoscopy, it's going to swell to 11.03%. And the guy says, wait a second, I got to drink all this thing, take two days off work and get this thing, camera up, go up there. And you're going to change my risk of death from 11.03 to 10.88. Is that right? I say, yeah, that's what I'm going to do for you. You want to do it? They're going to say, mm, I don't know, because it doesn't sound the way people say that this is a life-saving task that Katie Couric told me to do. You know, it doesn't have the same gravitas, okay? So what are the downsides of colonoscopy? Perforation, it's a downside and it's different than flexible sigmoidoscopy. There's the life years lost from prep, from procedure, from taking a day off work. And many studies have sort of tried to quantify that economic cost. Colonoscopy is like a mammogram for one breast. So they say, uh, probably not. The biology of the right side of the colon is very different than the left side of the colon. The mutations are different. The response to cetuximab is different. There's so many things that are different. Anyone who's in oncology will know that those, that's not a fair comparison. And also mammograms also have a very dubious evidence base. You can see our original 2016 BMJ paper, and you can read the great book by Peter Gocha and call, by Peter Gocha. There are two ongoing trials, which is nicely noted by the editorialist. Two ongoing trials. I believe Doug Robertson is the PI of one and then the editorialist of this paper. And I believe David Lieberman at the OHSU, who is a wonderful doctor and a brilliant man. I think he's the PI of the other one, the VA study. And they're going to test colonoscopy versus fit. That will be very informative. And we have a Swedish study doing a similar thing, which also had a low adherence rate of colonoscopy. These trials will flesh out our understanding, but the overall results of these studies are sobering. And here's what I think the takeaway should be. One, the USPSTF needs to wake up. You are doing so many things that are so bad lately, okay? You're screening for anxiety. Hey, by the way, do a randomized trial first, okay, USPSTF? You are lowering the cutoff age based on modeling. Hey, by the way, run a randomized trial before you start changing cutoffs, USPSTF. You're saying any screening is better than no screening. You just made that up. You just made that up, okay? It could very well be way worse to recommend any screening because you're taking people who would have gotten the Flexig, which is the best screening, and now they're getting a blood-based screening test, which is you know, so bad that we wrote that article in JAMA saying it shouldn't have been approved. You are playing games, USPSTF. Just stick to the evidence. Stick to the evidence. Is that so hard to stick to the evidence and not to exaggerate, elaborate, extrapolate, and be swayed by every lobbyist, okay? So USPSTF fail. I think these results should change your guidance. Next time, say Flexig is preferred. Why? It has the strongest data and all this other stuff. Maybe it's better than doing nothing, but hard to say. FOBT, cause-specific reduction, but no all-cause benefit. The next thing, we need to do randomized trials before we debut screening. Grail, if you try to debut Grail on this planet before you do a randomized trial showing a reduction in either all-cause death or all-cancer death, but I want to see all-cause death, 
we're, I'm coming for you because this is ridiculous. We can't spend billions of dollars on these screening tests without legitimate proof they improve outcomes. Think about what we're not spending it on. Go look at the food they serve children in cafeterias. Go look at how we treat blood pressure in this country. Go look at how we treat women who are pregnant. Those are all things we can take money for and put money into, and people will live longer, richer, and better lives. Instead, we prioritize screening, which turns healthy people into patients in the medical industrial system, and it can only do that if you have robust, credible evidence of all-cause mortality benefit. You don't have that here. This trial is so, so sobering. Closing thoughts. My closing thoughts on this topic are simple. This is a good study. People are going to say, oh, it's only 42%. It's only 42%. Well, by the way, what do you actually think it is in America? Those statistics I showed you of 60% are based on surveys, which may be inaccurate. There are a lot of Americans who may not be participating in surveys. Last I checked, your polling is also not so accurate. We don't know what it is in America. But certainly, for a lot of the history of colonoscopy, the last 25 years, it has probably been very close to what it was in this study. So why were we hemorrhaging tens of billions of dollars on a procedure that can be billed from $2,000 to $6,000, depending on the play? Why are we hemorrhaging all this money on this without knowing if as a population we're better off for it? Naturally, people don't want to do this. I mean, who wants to drink a bucket of something that will make you poop yourself uh, to the edge of <laughs> the edge, the edge of the edge, the real edge, the edge? Go listen to Lewis Black. Okay, then you get a sense of what it's like. Uh, who's going to do that if you tell someone your risk of death is instead of 11.03% over 10 years, which by the way is a lot to me, a 10% risk of death over 10 years, I'd be pretty nervous. It goes down to 10.88%. Um, we incentivized this procedure over Flexig, the one we had better data. We told ourselves an analogy that may not have been true. The Flexig trials, to their credit, they had adherence rates between 55 and 83%-ish. Um, this is much lower, um, but it's also because it's also more onerous, isn't it? Um, I, I think somebody will argue that they weren't good at doing colonoscopies in this study. I saw a little bit of that in the editorial. That's a mistake. Um, their sequel hit rate was pretty good. And what's the distribution of providers in the United States? There's a huge distribution. And, and the patient getting colonoscopy screening doesn't know how often my providers are find polyps, how often they hit the cecum. That's, that's, a, a, that's obscured from me. So we got some nice complementary evidence. We've got um, Kaiser Permanente analysis by Doug Corley. We've got... Uh, uh, propensity score match studies, but this is randomized. We're getting the randomized trial business. So listen, I follow this field, published many papers in this field. I've been on this for the beginning. This is an important study. It's going to change the conversation. Mark my words, in the next five years, the USPSTF, they will yield to what I have just said. They will in fact change. They won't say any screening is better than no screening. They will say some screenings are better, and I bet Flexig is going to be at the top. And if I were to bet, we will see what these next studies show, but if they're anything like this, if they're as sobering as this study, we're going to move from colonoscopy back to flexing in this country. It's going to take 15 or 20 years, uh, but that's the direction I see. And then maybe we'll have to revisit those flexing studies and do some for the modern age. So this is it. This is the real medical science. I mean, this is what, this is why I like it. I mean, you gotta, you gotta know a lot and you gotta think about it and you gotta get evidence, but it's also history and, you know, screening principles, uh, I like it. So if you like this podcast, you know what to do. Um, leave a review on Apple iTunes. If you like this video, like, subscribe, comment, leave a message. Um, if you like this, you should read my books, Ending Medical Reversal and Malignant. There's parts of both that are pertinent to screening. Um, you should read our papers at www.vinaikkprasad.com forward slash papers. We try to make most of our papers available. Someday I'll find a way to make them available by thematic topic and so you can see all our cancer screening work. But we're very interested in cancer screening. I've been that way for about 15, 20 years now. So, professor of epidemiology, cancer doctor, taking you through this. 
No one can say it's not in my wheelhouse. It's entirely within my wheelhouse. And this is my conclusion, having read the paper, the supplement, which by the way, oh, the last thing I said, the supplement's terrible. Come on, make the people put out forest plot that you know sorts things out by country and some other variables. Let me get a little bit more granularity to this data. That supplement was awful supplement. Um, the paper was pretty well written. The methods were, I think, decent. The editorial, I'm, I'm not happy with. I would have had a couple of different editorials to show a range of ideas around this. Um, but the editorial was actually, you know, it is what it is. Um, could have been worse, you know, it could have been like an oncology drug editorial, which no matter what the trial says, it says, yeah, you know, full steam ahead. So on that positive note, until next time, this is dropping hopefully as soon as the paper drops.